And so, if you will, uh, turn to Psalm 67, I'm going to read through this. And one thing I'd like to tell you, um, I'm going to spend most of my time on Psalm 67 while, since I'm painting a picture, and this is more of a thematic or topical kind of message, I'm going to jump around a little bit. You may not be able to keep up with me with some of it. So you can just listen if you want, okay, on some of the verses, because I want you to get the picture. Let's jump in here to Psalm 67, and let's pick this apart. And uh, verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God, and may all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God our God will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Now, you understand this is the Old Testament, it's the Psalms, and, and this is written in, a, in a, he, a, Hebrew, a Hebrew poetic way. It's a song. They actually sang this in, uh, in, the, in the temple. And this is a little bit different. When we try to understand passages like this, it's a little bit different than the New Testament, because the New Testament is in Greek. And the New Testament, being in Greek, is a very technical language. So you look at a word and you see where it fits in a sentence and it's very technical. Whereas when we go to the Psalms, there's a lot of poetry here. There's a lot of uh, music here. There's a sense in which the way this whole thing is put together has some kind of uh, motion to it. And what you realize is that verse 1 aligns and says basically the same exact thing as verse 7. And then it picks up a notch and verse 2 aligns with verse 6. And then it picks up another notch. Three aligns with verse five. And if you notice, three and five said the exact same thing. And then finally, you have verse four, which is the crescendo, which is the climax, which is the peak. And you can imagine that in a song, this this kind of sense of a building to the center. For the uh, sake of good exegesis here, if you jump with me back to verse one, I want to try to begin to pull this apart and let us see some wonderful things here. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. There's there's three key thoughts here that I'd like you to see. The first one is that may God be gracious to us. Although our NIV says gracious, in the early translations, uh, the word there was merciful. Because the Hebrew word is very closely related to grace and mercy. And those two words are very closely related. Because you see, grace on one hand is a sense of unmerited favor. It's favor on us that we absolutely do not deserve. Whereas mercy is not getting something that we do deserve. See, we deserve the wrath of God, but we don't get that. We get mercy. And we don't deserve to be sons of God. We don't deserve forgiveness, and and God gives us those things. So there's a real, in the original language, there's a real wonderful word used here that ties those two thoughts together. And we desperately need to understand grace, folks. We really do. Because we have to understand that we are not neutral. People are not neutral. We are haters of God apart from Christ. Apart from his work in our lives, people are rebellious to the core of their being. It's who we are. We're we're rebels. We're haters of God. If Jesus were here today and apart apart from understanding the gospel, we would be in the thrones of people screaming out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And that may sound radical, but you understand that we can only experience God's love. We can only experience uh, His love and His acceptance of us 
to the extent that we understand His grace and our need for it. Otherwise, what we end up by doing is we end up by falling into what we call self-justification. And our natural tendency is to do that. We want to try to justify ourselves. But before a holy God, we can't. So we desperately need God's grace. But you know, this is an amazing thing because it would be enough, if you think about it. In fact, it would be over enough. Just the fact that God would give us His grace. That He would give us His favor when we don't deserve it. We could stop right there and it would be profound. But on top of that, look at what look at the nation of Israel was saying. May God be gracious to us and bless us. I mean, if it isn't enough that God has His grace for us, now He blesses us. He gives us things. He comes into our presence. He touches our lives. He answers our prayers. He literally blesses our lives. And that leads us to the third idea there of shining His face upon us. That's the sense in which His presence comes right into our midst. This is a profound thing, folks. The idea that God's, God would be gracious and merciful to us. That He would bless us. That He would shine His face on us. He does not have to. We don't deserve any of that. And yet He's chosen to do it. He's chosen to do it. To do it. And you know, we can quibble theologically. Listen, I've studied a lot of theological, systematic theologies. And I understand the systematic theology of this church. I'm a part of this church. And we can quibble about things, but listen. Just let, let's get out of the theological fog for a minute. Let's take all the stained glass windows off everything and sit here for a minute and realize that you are sitting here today as an individual, as a human being. If you were the only one in here, I'd be saying this to you eyeball to eyeball. You're sitting in here today under the incredible favor of God just merely by the fact that you're hearing the word of God. Just merely by the fact that you can sit here in, in some sense of health, and most of you probably drove here in a car, and you're sitting in a comfortable chair, and your heart's beating, and God has allowed you to hear his word. Do you realize that there's millions of people on the earth today that don't even know the name of Jesus Christ? And then you have to say, why me? What a mystery. Because somehow, I don't know why, it's an incredible mystery. God has somehow seen fit to allow all of us to be born in this time in history, in this place, and be in this room today, hearing what we're hearing today. That's profound. And the ramifications of that are huge. Do you realize that even, even when we begin to, begin to think of the blessings, do you realize that 85% of the Christian wealth in the world resides right here in the United States? 85%. I mean, God could have just rescued us, taken us to heaven. But on top of that, he's just dumped incredible, incredible blessings on us. And that takes us to, to verse 2. But look at verse 2 says. That your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. This is all about the gospel, folks. That God's ways, God's ways of his grace and his work and his forgiveness and his salvation would be made known to all the earth, all the nations throughout the scriptures. This idea of nations, this isn't like governments. This is the idea of ethnos, ethnic groups, different people groups. You see, God has had his favor on us and blessed us and come into our presence. For what purpose? That his ways would be made known in the world. That's what the whole issue is about. And when you go to even, even 6, it says, Then the land will yield its harvest. This word land in the original language is a wonderful word. It actually has the idea of a spiritual, mystical sense of, 
a community of people under the headship of the Messiah. What do you call that? The church. Way back, the nation of Israel was singing this song. May God be gracious to us. May he bless us. May he shine his face upon us. That your ways, Lord, may be known in all the world. To all peoples. That your salvation would be made known. And then verse 3. May all the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. It's a natural response. That when people experience the grace of God and the mercy of God and they understand this. That they begin to praise God. And this is what God is all about. This is what it's all about. And this has always been his purpose and his plan, you see. And this is one of those times that you don't have to write all these verses down, but just think about this for a moment. What's God's big purpose in the world? It's about his glory. It's about him being glorified in the world. See, our sinfulness wants us to be glorified. I mean, I want glory. That's my natural tendency. We all want that. That's what happened in the garden. But it's about God's glory. And so you start looking through the scriptures and you can't get away. I mean, you can go, I can make a list miles long that God chooses his people. Ephesians 1 for his glory. That he, that he created the universe, Isaiah 43, for his glory. He called Israel for his glory. He rescued his people, Israel, from Egypt in Psalm 106 for his glory. And listen to these last three that I want to throw out to you this morning. In John 14, 13, it says he actually answers our prayers for his glory. Isaiah 43 and Psalm 25 says he forgives our sin for his glory. And John 16 says he's given us his spirit for his glory. You see, so often we think of the Christian life that we are the point. We're not the point. God's the point. The very reason that he's, he's chosen us, the very reason that he's forgiven us, the very reason that, that he uh, answers, answers our prayers and has given his spirit, it's all about him. It's not about us. And then further, the the thematic theme, the theme throughout the scriptures that's so fascinating is that how has he planned to do this? How has he planned to make his glory known in the nations? Well, this is what he's done. Turn with me real quick back to uh, Genesis chapter 12. I know this is a familiar passage to some of you. But I want you to see this as just one verse. I could show you a whole bunch of verses again. We don't have the time this morning. But I want you to see this theme. Genesis chapter 12. Now, there's there's this guy by the name of Abram. We don't know anything about this guy. He could be Mark, could be Joe, could be Steve, could be Karen, could be Ruth. But the bottom line is this, is that the Lord had said to Abram, out of all the people on the earth, God picked out this guy, Abram. Come here, Abram. Leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And look what he says. This is what the Lord says to Abram. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All different types of ethnic groups, all different types of people are going to be blessed through you. Here's the principle. Here's God's plan. He has always chosen the few to bless the many. And again, I could give you a whole line of scriptures. God bless Abraham. And chose him so he'd become a blessing to the many. He chose Solomon, gave Solomon all these riches and all these wisdom you can see in First Kings. For what? To bless the many. The tribe of Jacob. Think of Jesus when he called his disciples. He called his disciples to what? So they'd become a blessing to the many. He didn't call them just so that they could sit with him and 
have a nice, comfortable, you know, cup of tea. The idea, there was a plan there. And it carries it out throughout the scriptures. And you see Peter repeat it in Acts chapter 3 when he, he preached that first sermon after the Holy Spirit came on him. He repeats this whole theme. And so does Paul in Galatians 3. He repeats this theme. God chooses the few to become a blessing to the many. And I hope you can see how that aligns with this Psalm 67. That God has been gracious to us and He's blessed us and He's shown His face upon us. For what reason? That we would become a blessing to the nations, to those outside of these walls. That has always been God's plan. And then, if that weren't enough, folks, think. Right now, again, we could stop and say, wow. But if that weren't enough, then God allows us, through His Word, He gives us an insight into His incredible plan for all of humanity. This incredible mystery that all these different types of people are going to come to faith in Christ and they're all going to be made one and they're all going to stand together and worship the king. Talk about diversity. I mean, it's going to be incredible. Paul talked about this mystery. Peter talked about this mystery. And actually, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that when the gospel has been preached, when the gospel has been made known to all the different people groups of all the world, then the end will come. You see, he chooses a few to bless the many. They, when the few go out to bless the many and they, they deliver the gospel, then all these people hear the gospel. And once the gospel has been heard by all these people and all the people that respond, that God has planned to respond, then the end will come. And God has given us a glimpse into this. God has given us a picture. But then this leads us to a little bit of a problem we have. And here's our problem, is that we may or may not live what we profess, but we'll always live what we believe. So you know what a man or a woman or even a church really believes, not by what they say, but by what they do. We may or may not live what we profess, but we'll always live what we really believe. So you watch what a person does and you'll know what they really believe. Now the point I make, the reason I bring that up is you see, here's this nation of Israel singing this in the temple. They knew the theology that they had been a chosen people to bless the nations, to bless all other ethnic groups. But what do you see begin to happen in the scriptures? Let me give you a couple little snapshots. You see Jonah. Here's Jonah, an Israelite. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go to these Ninevites. And I want you to tell them to repent. And they're going to repent and turn to me. And you know what Jonah's response is? You've got to be crazy. You see, I don't know... I really don't know about evil and if you can, you know, line it up and get, make one thing more evil than another thing. But in human terms, okay, the Ninevites were far worse than the Nazis. I mean, they'd go into entire communities and wipe out communities, but they wouldn't just kill people. I mean, they'd take the, the older men and they'd pluck out their eyes. And they'd line them all up and set them all down. And then they'd rape and murder the women and children right in front of these men so the men could hear the screams of their families and their kids and their wives. And then they'd take the bodies after they killed everybody and they'd pile them up in big piles. And also archaeology shows us that they would literally, uh, in many cases, uh, decapitate people, cut off all their heads, and pile their heads in great big mountains. So you'd go into a village, a village or a city that the Ninevites came into and there's a big pile of, of decaying human heads. Great big mountain of them. This is a sick group of people. Now, I don't know if you think about it. Do you have anybody in your life you think is kind of like, yuck? Well, Jonah's supposed to go to these people and tell them to repent so they can turn to God. And Jonah says, you've got to be kidding me. And then about, you know, a thousand miles that way, Jonah gets on a ship and heads that way. 
And many of you had the story. He got a round-trip ticket, didn't he? And he headed back into Nineveh. He's supposed to go through the cities, two-day city. It's a, it must be a pretty good city. He took two days to walk through this thing, smelling like a stinking fish. And you can imagine the great conviction in which he preached with. <laughs> I don't know what it sounded like. But he preached for two days to repent. Then he went up and sat on the mountainside. And he sat up there. And you know what he was waiting for? He was waiting for the people not to repent. So God would send down fire and lightning and fry them. And he's sitting up there in his little air-conditioned tree and saying, Man, I can't wait to watch this. And part of the reason we know that is because when it didn't happen and the people repented, Jonah went into a great depression and actually wanted to commit suicide. He was like, you can't, you got to be kidding me. I just delivered the message to these people, these evil, awful, gross people, and they've repented and turned to God. You see, Jonah missed the whole point that he'd been chosen to bless others outside of himself, outside of these walls. That was the issue. And then you can go into the New Testament and you can look at all the, all the scenarios with the Pharisees. You know how, how nationalistic they were and how they wouldn't go outside of themselves. And anytime anybody did, and especially when Jesus showed up, man, they had a fit. They had a fit when Jesus went outside of themselves because, you see, they, they got settled in themselves. And again, you know, we could get into a lot of reasons. There's pride, self-centeredness, nationalistic issues. The bottom line is they needed to repent. But they get settled in themselves and they don't realize that the blessing that God has given them, the reason God has chosen them, is not for them. Archbishop Temple said, said it this way. He said, the church is the only organization on the face of the earth that does not exist for the sake of its members. It's for what's outside of these walls. But the nation of Israel didn't get it. Even, even after Jesus was resurrected and ascended, he had trained his disciples. At first, they were, they were kind of slow getting going, if you remember. In Acts chapter 1, he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they were witnesses in Jerusalem, and they stayed in Jerusalem until about Acts 7 or 8. And they were kind of pretty well camped there. It was pretty comfortable. And you know what God did? He brought in persecution. And he blew the place up, basically. And I don't have time to get in Scripture. You can read it for yourself in Acts 8. But the Scriptures say that where all these people were scattered, they preached the gospel. Actually, we have secular historians, one man by the name of Celsus, who, says, who said, Everywhere I go, I hear these Christians jabbering about their Jesus. And you remember even in Acts, some of the, the religious leaders says, Oh, no, they've come here now. <laughs> Everywhere these Christians went, they disturbed the place. They caused a problem, didn't they? And Jesus warned us of that. He said, listen, if they crucified me, they're going to crucify you. Persecution comes with the program. It's all part of it. Don't be surprised by it. Shouldn't be shocked by it. And, of course, Paul understood this. Peter understood this. Jesus. In fact, Jesus, all, all, think of all the passages. The fields are white in the harvest, but the laborers are few. Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came, to, I came for the sinners, not for the healthy. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And then, of course, Kelly preached a wonderful message a month ago on, on the Great Commission, this great mission. And then Paul, you know, when I think of Paul, this is a wonderful passage. I love 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 because Paul says, what is my crown? What is my glory? What is, what is the thing when I stand before Christ that, I, that is going to be like the wonderful, if you want to think of reward? He said to the Thessalonians, you're my crown. You're my glory. Folks, when we stand before God, it's going to be people. It's going to be people that we stand there in a sense and hand to the Savior. That is what it's going to be all about. That's what it's going to be all about. 
And of course, we can easily think, you know, Jesus, of course, obviously the Lord God of the universe, he's a big gun. And even Paul and Peter, man, those guys are big guns. But turn to a passage with me real quick, if you would. Mark chapter 5. I just want you to see something here. Mark chapter 5. I'm not going to read the whole story, and I'm just going to make a couple comments. Mark chapter 5 and verse 1 there. Um, I don't know if your Bible has a little caption there, but this, this is all about the healing of a demon-possessed man. And this man had a bunch of demons in him. And verse 1 says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, this was an area, kind of a rural area, where people, there were a lot of farmers around and stuff. But actually, the Gerasenes was in an area where there were ten different cities. It was called the Decapolis. Okay? So Jesus goes in this area. He lands on the shore. He's in this rural area. And this demon-possessed man comes out. And Jesus casts out the demons. Okay? And he casts these demons into the, into the swine, into the pigs, which was the people's economy. But, the, and, you know, we, we can discuss all that theologically. There's a lot of discussions, and I don't want to spend time on that. But the point is the pigs ran down. They all died in the lake. And now, if you look with me at verse um, 17, it says, Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So he did this wonderful thing for this man, and now the people all kind of panicked and they're afraid, and they're all taken off running. And then continue on with me in 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Now, this was seminary training, folks. Best seminary training in the world. Verse 19, Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now turn with me real quick over to Mark chapter chapter 8. 7 and 8. You'll see something very interesting. Look at chapter 7, verse 31. Mark 7, 31. It says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. Isn't that interesting? Now jump down to chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, this is where he's at in the Decapolis, Another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, and this is where he did the miracle of feeding the other, feeding the many. In fact, jump back up in the 32 of seven. I'm sorry, I should have said that. There are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. And anyway, the point is, is that Jesus began to do all these miracles in the Decapolis. And if you remember, just a few chapters before, they said, go away from us. We don't want you. Do you see what happened here? Here's a normal guy, everyday guy, wants to follow Jesus. Jesus said, you don't need to follow me. You just need to go home and tell people what the Lord has done for you. That's all you got to do. Just go tell people what the Lord has done for you. In fact, you've heard many times uh, Bill quote Robert Murray McShane. McShane said this, you know there's a hell, you know that all the unconverted are hastening to it, you know there's a Savior and he's stretching out his hands all day long to sinners. Does it require that much learning to tell fellow sinners that they are perishing? Is it really that hard? Does it really take that much theology? No. I mean, look at our Savior. He said, just go tell people what God's done for you. Because God's the one that's going to do the work. And we could go on other stories. Think of the Samaritan woman in John 4. Same thing happened. She went back and told everybody she'd met the Messiah. And all the people came running, and tons of people got saved. And it was all because she went back and said, hey, I ran into God. I think of a story right here. I moved here seven years ago, kind of parachuted in here to have a ministry, didn't know anybody. Just began to walk around the city talking to people. One day, my tub's all messed up on my house I rent. 
God sends this guy, Terry, to my house. So I started talking to Terry about Christ, and he didn't know the Lord, and he wanted to get together and talk to me. And we met the next day at this booth in Perkins. I think that booth's anointed. We've, there's been a lot of things that happened in that booth in the last seven years. Anyway, I met with Terry and just shared with him the gospel. And right there, Terry was just, boom, is what he'd been looking for for a long time. And I could hardly meet with that guy for the next six or eight weeks. I could hardly meet with that man and talk about the great things of God without him just welling up with tears. But there was a day within a month or two of Terry coming to faith in Christ seven years ago that he was on a bus with me. And he was saying, you know, I'd really love to tell my friends about what's happened here. He says, what am I supposed to tell them? And I just told him kind of what Jesus said. I said, well, what's happened to you? And Terry, in kind of a fumbly, simple way, explained to me the gospel. I said, yeah, just tell him that. Just tell him that. So he did, and he stepped on some toes, and some things happened. But you know what? In the earlier service, folks, there was almost an entire row back there filled up with people that come to this church now who have come to faith in Christ or renewed their faith in Christ because Terry went and talked to them. Isn't that amazing? And that's what God's all about. It's still happening today. This isn't just a story here in, in, our, in our Bible. This is the Word of God, folks. It reveals God to us. It reveals the way of life to us. It reveals the way of doing ministry to us. This is the issue. That God has blessed us. That He's had His grace on us. That He's, that he's touched us. And it's all so we would become a blessing to others. And then what about the church in America? Just a couple quick things here. I, I just want to touch on a... I don't want to go over... I'm going to go over a little bit here, but if you can hang with me. Out of One Missions magazine, it says this. It's, it's as if the average church member were saying to God by his actions, my purpose in life is to raise good kids, live a happy, healthy life, and promote righteousness in my country so I do not have to suffer the consequences of sins of those around me. But let's say we achieve all these goals. We have a wonderful family. Our kids are great and they love the Lord at least enough to get saved. We've beat back the vices in our country. Abortion is gone. Pornography is non-existent. All the casinos and lotteries have been eliminated. The new president is a Bible-believing Christian, and everyone is living, quote-unquote, clean lives. Even if we achieve all this, what is the ultimate purpose? Is the purpose simply to seek comfort and pleasure and to keep God's blessings to ourselves? Or is there a higher purpose? Is there a higher purpose that the worship of God by all people so that His glory would be made known in all the earth? If we worship God for all... For only, or excuse me, if we worship God only for what He can do for us, then our God is too small, and we short circuit what He wants to accomplish in and through our lives. See, He's inviting us, friends, to be part of something absolutely phenomenal. In fact, the American church, we spend, of our, of our giving, we don't spend much more than 5% of our giving for the sake, sake of the cause of Christ. In fact, it's actually closer to 2%. That's the average tithe of people in America. <clears throat> excuse me, people in America. Two percent, And of that money, this is what's striking. Of that money, money, there's various statistics, but anywhere from 90 to 95 percent we spend on ourselves. We spend four or five percent on reaching people who already have the gospel. And do you know we spend less than one quarter of one percent on those who have not heard the name of Jesus? Less than one quarter of one percent of our giving. And remember what Psalm 67 says. The whole point of the thing, the whole point of God touching our lives and blessing us and shining His face upon us is that His ways would be made known in the earth. And the thing is, friends, is yes, there's a place for conviction for us. There's a place of repentance. Ken Demers talked about that last week. But what we need to see is we need to see the bigger picture. We need to understand that much of our thinking about this has been distorted. Just a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, 
But people will come up to me when I speak on a message like this, and, and, and there's a sense maybe they want to pop my balloon or something. I don't know. But they'll say, well, you know, Dan, you're, you're gifted. And I say, what do you mean? Well, you're, you know, you're gifted in evangelism. And my natural reaction is to say, show me that in the Bible. Now, it does say that there's the evangelist. Three different places in the New Testament, it talks about the evangelist. And actually, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church acknowledges this office of the evangelist. But look what Ephesians 4 says. Turn, uh, just drop down to verse 11. And the whole context here is the whole idea of the unity of the body of Christ. There's this unity. We are a team. We are corporately together in this thing. And look what verse 11 says of, of chapter 4. It was he, meaning Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And we'll look at verse 12. What is the purpose that God has given these things? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Why has God given the evangelist? The, key is clear, the, the clearest key in Scripture for why God has given the evangelist is that the evangelist would come to God's people and say, there's a world out there to be reached. He can't sleep at night because he thinks of the world out there. And the evangelist has been called to come to God's people to encourage them to see this incredible picture that God's had grace on you and he's given you blessings and he's shown his face upon you and he wants you to be part of something. This is the most wonderful thing that you could ever be a part of. God is inviting you to be part of the kingdom of God and to invite people into the kingdom of God and someday you're going to stand before Christ and you're going to have all these crowns because you're going to be part of this incredible thing. Now, another misunderstanding that we have is we begin to individualize this. Listen, part, part of it is individual in the sense that we're all supposed to be a testimony of Christ. We're all supposed to talk about Christ. Remember, I even talked about the early days, these Christians jabbering about their Jesus. It doesn't take a lot to do that. But at the same time, there's a corporate sense. We need people giving. We need people praying. We, it's, it's like a whole team. It doesn't mean every one of us go down on the streets and, and start talking to people. I love to do that. It's scary, but I love to do it. Some of you wouldn't begin to do that, and that's okay. You don't have to. But we all need to be in this thing together. It's a corporate thing. But we're so individualistic in America that when we read the Scriptures, we think it's individual, and it's not. Well, there's a whole lot more I could say about that. I think the other thing I would just want to say is that we get caught up in this methodology thing. Jesus did everything. Just look at Acts chapter 16, 17, 18, 19. Every single one of them. Paul does something different. Acts 16, he goes and meets in a Bible study with a bunch of women. Lydia. And that becomes the first church heading off in there into Europe. Acts 17, he kind of hangs around Athens there where there's a lot of philosophers, a lot of intellectual intelligentsia, kind of like Lawrence. He does something different there. Acts 18, he goes into a blue-collar city, Corinth. He actually starts working with the blue-collar workers. Does something different there. Acts 19, he goes into Ephesus, sets up a school and starts this dialogue with people, kind of like a... Uh, if you've heard of Francis Schaeffer in the Labrie Institute, there's a sense in which people come there and they interact with him and they dialogue. And there's all this dialoguing going on for a few years. And actually, the scriptures say in Acts 19 that, that all of Asia heard the gospel as a result of that. didn't mean every single person, but it had spread everywhere as a result of that. And I was looking in the Book of Order, the governing paperwork for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And listen to what it says. It is the privilege and primary duty of a particular church to worship God regularly. We see that in Psalm 67, isn't it? Isn't that the natural outflow? Worship God. 
But then look at the next, the next stanza down says this. In terms of its work, in terms of the church's work, God's people's work, the first duty of the church is to evangelize by extending the gospel both at home and abroad, leading others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and to provide for the nurture and of that faith that all might grow in grace and sanctification. It is to be remembered that good deeds and ministry and service to others, offering relief to those in need, is the fruit of the gospel. Without the clear evidence of such fruit, all else is brought into question. Do you hear that? All else is brought into question. If we are not evangelizing and we are not ministering to the needs of people outside our walls, everything else that we do should be brought into question. It says it right here in the official documents of this denomination. The church must never confuse its primary task of evangelism with the fruit of faith, good works. In other words, the primary task is evangelism followed by relief and good works. Well, to finish up the picture, we're running out of time. There's a whole lot more I'd like to say. But Psalm 67 says a wonderful thing in verse 4. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. This idea of ruling justly isn't so much of a government it's a sense of that final judgment of the Antichrist. Did you know that? The original language here gives us this wonderful picture of the final judgment of the Antichrist and the vindication of God's people. You know all the suffering we go through, all the persecution, all the sacrifice we make for the sake of the kingdom of God? All of that's going to be vindicated. Now, I'm 43 years old this year. And given a, a, a typical man's normal life in, in this world, I'm about halfway done. And I know a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Life is short. Life is real short. And then we stand before the king. And if you'll turn with me to one last passage, I want to show you the, the final picture here that I hope you get the painting that I'm trying to paint this morning. Turn to re the book of Revelation with me, if you would, please. Chapter 7. Remember, we started way back. We talked about Abram. He was going to be blessed. One, one single man. He was going to be blessed. And through him, all the nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, we're going to hear these, this wonderful message of God. Look at... Chapter 7 of Revelation, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, folks, listen to me, please. If I can just paint this picture, be a little dramatic for just one moment, listen to this. This is a reality. This isn't just some foggy, fuzzy thing someplace. There is going to be a day more real than what you're experiencing right now where you're going to be standing amongst a sea of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're going to be standing there waiting for the great I Am to come out on the center stage. And then we're, then we're going to say, say, Norm! Hey, Norm! I just ran into Jose! And you're going to say, Jose, is it? Yeah, he's got his wife and his kids and his grandkids here. And you say, what, what's that? And he said, well, he, he met you when you went down to Reynosa, Mexico, when he was a little boy, and you told him about Jesus. He's here, Norm. And the stories are going to go on and on and on and on of the people that heard the gospel through Transworld Radio and through all sorts of different means and all sorts of different methodologies because God's people got the point that we're not the point. And there's going to be this sea of people and folks who are going to be there. And the great I am is going to come out on center stage, and I don't know what we're going to do. I, my guess is we're going to be a whole lot more excited than I am right now. <laughs> I'll bet we are. 
I don't know if we're going to cry. I don't know if we're going to fall down, probably fall down. We're going to cheer. I don't know, but it's going to be a sea of people. That is the reality for those who know Jesus Christ. And I think that those who go through persecution and those who suffer for the sake of the gospel, somehow in their mind and hearts, that's always on their mind, that they're not living for here. And these momentary sufferings mean nothing in comparison to the great glory that, we, that we're, we're going to stand before. So I hope you get the picture. I hope you get the picture. And let me just wrap up with one quote. Amanda Smith, she was a woman born into slavery in 1837. Her, both her husband and her son died. You can probably imagine through that time of slavery, something probably awful happened. But she committed the rest of her life to evangelistic work. And I, and I want to read this because I think this should be our prayer. She said, how few there are that are willing to make any sacrifice to secure the freedom of souls that Jesus so freely offers. And this was her prayer. Lord, help me. And I will go for thee. Tell me what to do. Excuse me. Tell me what dost want me to do. Our language, Lord, help me. I will go for you. Just tell me what you want me to do. What is it you want me to do? And I think that should be our prayer. So I won't bow our heads. Lord, it's an incredible, incredible blessing and privilege and honor. It's beyond us, Lord, that you would allow us to see into the history of all mankind. It's incredible to think that the Lord God of the universe, who holds this whole thing together, has chosen us to be a part of it, to see it, to be able to participate in it. It's incredible. And I think, Lord, the only thing that is left for us is, first of all, Lord, help me. Lord, I am a sinner. I am self-centered. I like my comfort, just like my brothers and sisters here do. So help us, Lord. Forgive us. And we will go for thee. And then, Lord, tell us what you want us to do. How do you want us to use our gifts, Lord, in the corporate sense of the body and individually? How do you want us to go outside of these walls and take the blessings that you've given us and give them to the world? Oh, God, I know you'll show us. In Jesus' name, amen.